Hello ladies and gentlemen this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg show the mission of the show is to spread awareness on mindfulness practices psychology mental health and spirituality my job on the show is to invite world class performers to share the practices to live a fulfilled life this episode guest is Dr Kirk Parsley Dr Kirk is a former seal he served as an undersea medical officer at Naval Special Warfare Group 1 from June 2009 to January 2013. Dr. Parsley has been a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine since 2006 and served as Naval Special Warfare's expert on sleep medicine. His philosophy for wellness is simple. In order to optimize our health and get the most out of our bodies and minds, we must live more closely to the way we evolved as a species. In this episode Dr. Parsley talks about health optimization and performance meditation sleep visualization nature walk and I asked him how many hours did you sleep last night he said 11 to no more keep listening In order to optimize our health and get the most out of our bodies and minds we must live more closely to the way we evolved as a species So Dr Kirk Parsley, welcome to the show. Thank you. I feel very well. How would your three children, Hayden, Cole, and Harper, describe what you do for a living? Oh, I think they would just say I'm a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of doctor? Uh, I think they would just say he does a lot with sleep. Or, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what they'd say, honestly. I mean, they're, they're adults, really. I mean, my oldest son, 22, and then my other I have a 20 year old and a 17 year old, so I don't think they really care about what I do at this point. <laughs> I would, I would say that you know that I'm a health optimization and performance based doctor. That I don't non disease based, and there's no there's no way they would come anywhere close to saying that. I think they would just say he does a lot of sleep. <laughs> How many hours did you sleep yesterday night? Oh man. I had a glorious 11 hours in a row. Uh, I, I don't remember a single thing. I closed my eyes and then my alarm went off. I was like, God, I got to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 11 hours? You are a busy guy. How do you schedule a sleep? Well, I don't usually sleep 11 hours. But uh, as I was saying before we started this, I, I just drove back from uh, San Diego and I just... One is just like there's there's no real it's a real awkward sort of midway point when you're driving back because when you get about halfway you've just passed El Paso about you know about an hour and a half past El Paso is halfway and then there's really nothing I mean you <laughs> have to sleep in your car if you're going to sleep I mean there's no there's no place really to stop until you get within about three hours of my house and so I just do it all at once. So I'd been up all, yeah, I'd been up for 24 hours or more maybe when I, when I, when I finally got to sleep last night. And, you know, that is, of course, counter to all of my advice that I don't recommend people do any of that. Yeah. If, if you're only doing it once or twice a year, you're probably all right. You know, you know, <laughs> we'll come back to this sleep remedy in a while. Uh, could you walk us through about your experience as a Navy SEAL, as a physician? Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's a uh, yeah. Being a SEAL was really its own. That was really its own gig. I mean, that that's a completely different uh, career, different, 
completely different life at that point. But you know, I joined the military. Actually, actually dropped out of high school as a sophomore, and I I joined the military and went to went to do SEAL training, and I and I went through SEAL training. Obviously, made it, became a SEAL. Spent uh, about six years in the, as a SEAL, and then I got out and went went to college, thinking that I was probably going to do something health related, but I didn't know what. I was thinking like physical therapy or something like that. Ultimately, decided to become a doctor, obviously, and you know I I got engaged within about six months of getting out of the SEAL team, so. I was married in college, had my first kid in college, had a, another kid on the way. So I, you know, I was already married with kids when I was applying to medical school. So it just made sense to go to the military's medical school where they would pay me instead of me paying other people. And then I could support my family while I went to medical school. And I did. And the way the military works is, you know, they'll, they're happy to train you to do stuff, but uh, you have to give them back time. So that required me to stay in the Navy as a doctor for eight years. And I figured I would get back to the SEAL teams as their doctor, and I did. And then when I went back to the SEAL teams as their doc, I spent you know, about, half my, about half my time to, as a Navy doctor I spent there. And that's really where I learned how to do the type of medicine that I do now. Because as you can imagine, you know, SEALs, SEALs are very healthy people. They're not you're not dealing with um, a lot of disease. I mean, the only diseases they truly have are orthopedic injuries and overuse injuries and, you know, broken bones and trauma from war and things like that. Like, but as far as like their metabolic physiologic health, you know, they, they don't, they don't have anything that recognizes that I would, that anyone would recognize as a disease, but they still have concerns. And so they have concerns about, you know, really how well they're performing. <clears throat> and so if they start feeling like, you know, if they start feeling like they're, they're in aching pain all the time, or if they just feel like they're tired all the time, or their motivation's down, or their mood's down, or they can't control their emotions well, they can't focus, they can't remember stuff, they're, you know, they're getting fatter, they're getting weaker, even though they're doing everything right. So they're, they're really performance-based guys, and that really led me to have to learn a whole new set of skills. And I, I had the good fortune of being, you know, the SEALs sort of having a little almost celebrity-like status at that point. And so I could call, you know, I could, I could read a fantastic book or watch a fantastic lecture. I could just call the, I, I could call the guy or gal and say, hey, man, I'd I love your book or I watched your lecture or I've been listening to you on podcasts and I'd really like to consult with you or come train with you, proctor under you, whatever you'd allow. And all of them, like every single one of them to, I mean, to a man, every one of them said, yeah, I'd love to. And none of them ever charged me anything uh, to train with. And so I just got to learn so much so quickly. And Is it because you served in the Navy SEAL that everybody treats you as a celebrity? No, because I was the doctor for the SEALs, because I could say, you know, I'm the doctor for the West Coast SEALs, and I need help with them, and everybody was just willing to help with the SEALs, and so they, they were just more, more than happy to, to train me, and I just, I had great opportunities to work with, you know, just, just, you know, revolutionary leaders in the, in the field of wellness and, and health, and it, very non-traditional stuff, you know, and while I was 
you know, one of the big things that I fell upon, you know, I, I chose probably the two worst professions for sleep. I mean, of course, Navy SEALs don't even think about sleep because that's a weak piece, completely optional. And, uh, you know, and doctors don't usually sleep well. I mean, you, you, you know, if you think of, uh, like the, the, the training pathway for doctors, you know, it's like, you know, it, it, it's, I don't know, it's like a badge of honor to, to pull more call than other people and to stay later than other people. And I mean, doctors just don't sleep. I mean, I, I did call every third night. So every third night I worked, I worked 40 hours in a row. And uh, on the other two days I was working probably 12 to 14 hours a day. So, I mean, there, there's just no, you know, there, there's no, there's no concern about sleep. And so, you know, interestingly, when I, when I really started trying to figure out what these guys, you know, what, what could I find? Because, you know, I did a bunch of labs and their, their labs verified what they were telling me story-wise, right? So like their testosterone was low and their growth hormone was low and their DHEA was low and their oxidation was high and their inflammation was high and their cortisol levels were either super high or non-existent. You know, they had insulin sensitivities of like, you know, a fat 40, 50 year old man, even though they were, you know, young, ripped, athletic looking guys. And so the, the labs didn't match what I was seeing in front of my face. But so I was looking for, you know, what, what is the cause? And, and I didn't know. I thought, well, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's this combat fatigue or, you know, shell shock or like, you know, they've called it something different in every war. And PTSD wasn't a big term yet. Uh, PTSD was known about in the psychology world. I'm a psych- I was a psychology major in college, so I, I was familiar with that phrase, but that was usually associated with, you know, like childhood abuse and stuff is the way people thought about PTSD. It wasn't as much thought of as a combat issue. And, uh, and you know, and these guys really didn't endorse PTSD like sim- syndom- uh, symptoms. They didn't have any of sort of the cognitive dissonance around PTSD or around yeah, that, that would be associated with PTSD. Like it really, it, it really didn't bother them and they weren't really, uh, you know, they were just sort of appropriately sad about their friends having died and, you know, bad combat situations and things like that. But it's not like these were nightmarish things that were keeping them awake or they're ruminating on or anything like that. So, yeah, I just started looking for, well, what's the unifying theory on all this? And, and I ironically stumbled upon sleep just because, you know, hundred plus guys came in my office and told me the same story. And it was so, I mean, the stories were so similar that I, you know, by the time I'd heard the 10th one, I could have told the other, you know, hundreds of people over the course of years, I could have told them their story for them because it was so similar. And, and yeah, I, I just, I stumbled across, you know, one of these guys was telling me, like I said, probably about the hundredth guy who's in my office said something about using Ambien every night for sleep. And I thought, Huh, that's that's some um, that seems kind of familiar. Let me and I, I, I remember like right just jotting this in my margin. I, I don't remember the patient's name or who it was, but I just remember I remember the act the thought and the act of writing in the top hand corner and being question mark and circling it. And then I went back through all my patients who who had come and told me their story and uh, every single one of them were on Ambien. And I thought, well that's probably a problem. But, you know, I was a Western trained medical doctor. I didn't know anything about sleep. I didn't have a single class about sleep. You know, we certainly didn't have any 
you know, classes on mindfulness or, you know, anything. <laughs> but we, we had nothing, uh, we knew nothing about stress mitigation or, or you know, mindfulness or sleep or meditation. You know, we didn't know anything about any of that stuff. So I said, well, let me, and I went to like basic, you know, college level textbooks on sleep. And I mean, I didn't even know what happened when you slept and or truly why you sleep. And so I, you know, I started educating myself. I started training with other doctors and pretty soon I came to the realization that, you know, that was the Occam's razor answer. I mean, the, one, the, the answer that required the fewest assumptions was that sleep really impacts every single aspect of your performance. And the longer I, you know, the longer I've been in this field and the more reading I do and the more research and more learning I do, I'm more and more convinced that sleep is, is not only a major issue in, in the health of you know, Western societies, but I, I think it's the primary one. I think it's way more important than our nutritional problems, and I think it's way more important than our exercise, you know, lack of exercise, lack of fitness issues. Um, and, and I think it's even more important uh, than, our, you know, than the stress levels we're carrying around. And I, and I say that just because you can't, you can't optimize any of those areas without optimizing sleep first. Like you can, eat, you can eat an ideal diet and you can work out in an ideal way and you can be very disciplined with sort of meditation, mindfulness, stress mitigation, do all sorts of things like that. But if you aren't sleeping well, it doesn't matter. Like it really, you're, you're not going to improve yourself. And if, I mean, you'll improve yourself, but you're going to improve yourself maybe 20 to 30%. Of, of your potential if you aren't sleeping adequately. Are you saying that sleep is the common denominator for health optimization, that even if we meditate, we have stress reduction practices, right. we, we are eating super healthy, we are working out every day, but if we don't sleep well, we are still missing out a lot of things? I, mean, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's the common denominator, I'd say it's the foundation for all of them. Like, you know, that's the foundation on which you build the house on. And, you know, it, as an example, like a lot of people ask me, I get asked all the time, you know, can meditation really replace sleep? Can I meditate 30 minutes a day and, and get the benefit of an hour of sleep or something like that? So you take something simple like that. Well, meditation, obviously, the better you get at meditation, meaning, of course, like the sort of the, the slower brainwave state that you can achieve through meditation. The more that you can actually let go, be present, and just let the whole world fall away, the better and better you get at that, the more benefit that you will get in a single period of time. So let's just say you're meditating for 30 minutes a day. And one, I mean, there, there's obviously myriad of benefits to meditation, but one of the you know, sort of in the Western doctor sort of world, when you think about the mechanics of one of the big one of the big metrics for meditation is that it lowers sympathetic tone. So you have your autonomic nervous system, which balances your body, uh, right? So your entire like you don't have to think about breathing. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to think about keeping your heart rate level. You don't have to think about your blood pressure. All like all of these things are controlled automatically, right? Your circulation, your organ function. These are all automatic things. But, but the automatic system that controls it, called the autonomics, has a pathway that slows everything down and has a pathway that speeds everything up. And sympathetic, of course, is the one that speeds everything up. So when you meditate, you're balancing your autonomic nervous system. 
And if you meditate for a really long time and you're really good at it and really skilled at it, you can actually go really dominantly towards the pathway that slows everything down. And that's why you have the sensation of everything slowing down and time slowing down even when, you're, when you meditate well. Does meditation help in getting a good sleep? Well, let me, let, I'm just about to get to that. So, so let's say if you, let's say you meditate 30 minutes a day and you're a great meditator and your, your, auto, your autonomic nervous system is slightly out of balance. It's slightly more sympathetic. So maybe, you know, let's say it's, it's 20% more sympathetic than it is parasympathetic. The ideal would those be those, for those to completely be equal. Well, if you meditate really well and you drop it by 10%, now you're only 10% some sympathetic dominant. And that's obviously 50% better. So that's, that's great. And it's a really, and there's a lot of health benefits to having done that. A lot of health benefits that you'll never even realize are there just because it does, there's so many thousands of things going on when you balance those systems out. However, if you don't sleep well, the amount of stress hormones and sympathetic tone that you're going into the meditation with is higher, right? So if you were sleeping well, you might have only been 10% up on sympathetic. And now when you meditate, you go to a completely balanced state. Now, the other thing is when you don't sleep well, you essentially don't have enough fuel. We, we can go back and talk about that, like what actually happens when you sleep. But you, when you don't sleep well, you essentially don't have enough physiologic fuel to operate your body through the day. So your body compensates for that by re by secreting stress hormones. And these stress hormones are actually catabolic. They start using your body as your fuel source. So you can you can see the problem there. If you aren't if you aren't sleeping well and you go from 10 10 well you go from 20% overload to 10% overload and then you go back to your life well, your stress hormones are going to go back up much faster now because your body's actually using your stress hormones as a way to fuel your body. Whereas if you get adequate sleep and you completely restore during the night, then you wake up with ideal levels of stress hormones. Essentially you wake up, it's like this basal level and you need some, I mean, you, you die without stress hormones. They keep you alert in proportion to your environment. But if you, if you wake up with ideal stress hormones, and then you just start going through your day and the stressors add up and the, you know, just if it, even if, even if it's not things that you could point to, but just like the stressors of life, your phone ringing, the, you know, traffic, the, you being at work or, you know, having noisy, rowdy kids when you're trying to homeschool or like whatever it is, but there's things that are kind of taking you out of balance. And then you meditate, you come back in balance and then you work some more and then you can meditate some more and come back in balance. But the point is just your overall stress level throughout the entire day is going to be higher if you're not sleeping. So you are saying that if we are not sleeping enough in our day-to-day -day life, meditation will not cover all those stress hormones. It is a substitute, but it is not something that can replace a sleep. I would say it's more than a substitute. I mean, it, I think it in Western civilization, I, th I think it's, you know, it's a requirement, really. I mean, I, I really think you, you have to do something. Even if you aren't calling it meditation, there has to be some skill in your life that you're applying you know, 
to in order to be healthy and in order to you know continually perform and grow and move closer towards whatever future you have I you know you visualized for yourself to move along your pathless your pathless path you have to I would, I would say you really need to meditate but my point is that you know, you can think about it like being hungry right so you don't eat you can't eat once and for all right you can't meditate once and for all you you can't just <laughs> yeah, I meditated and I'm done so it'd be like saying well I ate I ate a really big meal and now I'm done I don't need to eat anymore well at some point your body's going to need fuel again so you're going to have to you're going to have to eat again well and meditation is the same way so like just because you're getting the benefit of meditation doesn't mean that you're not done with meditation. You're going to build up the physiologic need for that, you know, rebalancing. You know, I realized that, you know, there, there are a bunch of Eastern terms and esoteric terms around chakras and all that. And I just, I don't know anything about that. I'm just talking about the things that I actually know about. So I'm talking about it from a physiologic standpoint. From a physiologic standpoint, you need that meditation to bring you back into balance. Now, for some people, that's a walk. Like some people, that's their, you know, they go on a, a nature walk. You know, they, they're, they're lucky enough to live where there's a bunch of greenery and foliage like us. Like, I, you know, like I walk down by, you know, I, I walk downtown along the river every day. And, and my path is, my path down there is 100% covered with trees and greenery and paths. And I go down there and I stay on the path and I, you know, walking next to water and in nature. And, you know, and I do this every day. That, for some people, that could be a form of meditation. Some people could deliberately do meditation with that. Like, like I've, I've trained, I've trained in breath walking, so I can literally make it a you know a deliberate form of meditation. But it's it would be akin to meditation anyway, just because it's getting me out into nature. It's taking my focus. You know, as long as I'm able to focus on what I'm doing, it's bringing me into the present. You know, it's in a and it's in a energetically good place in a stress reducing place, and that's a form of meditation. For some people, meditation is exercise. You know, for some people, you know, meditation is you know formal meditation. Some people, it's like a, a body movement. You know, it could be you know, like the meditative uh, form of yoga or tai chi or you know something like that. So, uh, without getting into you know preferences about what meditation is, we need we. We absolutely need it's necessary. It's just like sleeping. It's just like eating, and it's just like exercising. It, it is a it's it's a non it's 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 a it's not something you can compromise on. It, I'm blanking on the term that it's a common phrase. It's it's a it's a non it's a non optional entity anyway. I can't think of the phrase on it. But how do you schedule good sleep, meditation, nature walk? other mindfulness practices in your busy schedule well i i literally build my life around my sleep schedule first i you know it's my personal belief that that is that would be ideal for everybody and i can go into great detail as to why i believe that but i i think the most important thing is sleep so i have you know i have a a nighttime sleep ritual that I go through every every night. I go to sleep within 30 minutes of same time every night. And what time? I get in bed at 9 p.m. and I'm I'm usually asleep somewhere between 9:15 and 9:45. I can't remember the last time I've seen my clock at 10 o'clock when I, you know, when I when I wasn't you know deliberately keeping myself up late for some reason. 
and then I wake up when I wake up, but I wake up at, honestly, I wake up at 520. <laughs> Have day? Don't know why. It's just what time I wake up. I, I go to the gym at six. So, you know, I'm just, I've just been doing that for so long. I'm just programmed to where I wake up at 520. So, you know, if, if I sleep from 930 to 520, that's, you know, seven, uh, that's seven hours and 15 minutes worth of sleep, which is about right for me. It, you know, if I, if I really burn myself down and I, you know, like, I, I do have a really hard day, you know, I might sleep an extra 20 or 30 minutes, you know, that I'll, I'll, and that's usually I go to bed a little earlier. How should we know that what is the right amount of sleep we need? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, <laughs> the, the way to know that you're sleeping the right amount of time is, is that you don't need an alarm clock to wake up. So, and now that there's a caveat there. If you have if you have insomnia or some sort of sleep disorder where you're not getting adequate sleep and you and you always wake up in the middle of the night, that doesn't mean you're getting good sleep. So, I mean, I can tell you that all the research, you know, unlike the nutrition research and exercise research, there's all sorts of opinions and dogma about what's the best way to eat or what's the best way to exercise or even what's the best way to meditate or reduce stress. But there is zero, zero, zero conflict in the sleep research. All of the sleep research shows that humans need about eight hours of sleep per night, and that is everyone. So there's, you know, there's some, there's some hype out there about some genetic mutation that people can have, and they're called super sleepers, and they only need five and a half hours of sleep a night, and that's not true. But what that genetic mutation is is that their performance and their physiology is less impacted by sleep deprivation than everyone else's. So let's say if I slept six hours instead of eight hours, there's a there's a litany of things I could list off that I would be about 30% worse in. And that's both physiologic things, but also things that would be noticeable to me, like memory and strength and performance and endurance and like all sorts of things. I'd be about 30% worse that day by sleep, by skipping two hours of sleep. Now, these super sleepers, they will be about 5% worse instead of 30% worse, or maybe 10% worse instead of 30% worse. But they're not ideal. In order for them to be ideal, they still need to sleep eight hours a night. How do you influence Navy SEALs, corporate executives, and other high achievers you work with to schedule seven to eight hours of sleep in their crazy busy schedule? Well, that is a lot of psychology. So I work with people now with the seals, with the seals, it was easy because, and because the seals are by their nature, 100% committed to improving their performance. If you think about their job, you know, milliseconds can be the difference in life and death. You know, one lap of one lapse of intent of attention being just a little bit out of shape being just a little weaker and a little slower than you should be. This is life and death for these guys. So, and they're not really as concerned about their life and death. It's like, they don't want to be the guy that's causing somebody else to die or somebody else to be harmed or the mission to fail. It's probably the most performance organization in the world. So they are really, really, really focused on performance. And because they were focused on performance, all I had to do was just go up to, 
know, go up on the stage, throw my PowerPoints up there and show them how lack of sleep is impairing their performance in every single metric of their life, everything that they're important, that's important to them, including things that they already knew really well. Like, you know, obviously some people who are athletic as Navy SEALs, they know what testosterone is. They know what growth hormone is. They know what DHEA is. They know what inflammation is. They know what insulin sensitivity is. And so these are big, easy numbers to throw out there. And I can just show them data from other SEALs. It's like, look, when this guy was sleeping this much, this is what his testosterone and growth hormone looked like and so on and so forth. And then he started sleeping well and this is what, and this is what they started showing. So it, that's really the same thing I do now. But the difference is I have to know what the carrot is to put on the end of the stick. So most of the, most of my clients now are entrepreneurs. I mean, they're, there are others, right? So I have like, you know, performers who have people who are like entertainers, you know, who do movies or who are musicians or, you know, whatever. And I have professional athletes and even like college athletes and things like that. So, or just, you know, age group athletes, people who are doing Ironman in, in their 30s and 40s and just want to get better. But basically, I have to find out, look, what is it that, that motivates them? What, why? Why are they working with me? What are they trying to get better at? And I, and I always give the same uh, pitch. I'm like, I'm going to give you a magic wand and I'm going to allow you to change five major things in your life. And they can be any, any five things you want. You just choose. And so once I know what they really want to change, then I build my presentation of my work to them around their metrics. So everybody wants to everybody wants to perform better at something right just saying that saying that you want to engage in more mindfulness practices and be more present during the day that's a performance metric right like it, like that's a right. performance. um saying you want to be a better parent that's actually a performance goal right like what is it what aspect is it you want more energy to be able to play with your kids more do you want to be more emotionally balanced do you want to be able to be more creative and think more about how to deal with your kids issues do you want to be a more effective communicator do you Whatever it is, like it doesn't matter what you want to perform better at, I can tie that to sleep. And so then I spend, you know, my, my program is, is an annual program. The first quarter of the program is 100% me building the motivation around their carrot to make them consider sleep the most important aspect of their life. And once they get there, once they believe that it's the most important thing in the world, my job is easy, right? And I, I, I say this all the time too. If I said to you, Nishant, I'm going to give you $10 million cash, tax, <laughs> not even going to know about it. Let me give you $10 million. I'm going to come to your house with a big pallet of money. If you can sleep eight hours a night for 30 days in a row, do you think you'd be able to do that? I will. Every <laughs> you know would do that right they'd be like why wouldn't i do that of course i'll do that so that right there proves that anybody can do it if they have the proper motivation so all i have to do is find the motivation and the other thing is if i said that to you you and i would say nishan you have to do that but you have to do it without my help you just have to figure out a way to sleep eight hours a night you would do it you would get on google you would call experts you would do whatever you needed to do you would figure out a way to do it and so that's really the key. All I have to do is convince people it's the most important thing in their life. It's about psychological motivation. If the motivation is bigger than 
themselves, then they will do whatever it takes. Right. It's like, okay, you have a, you have a future that you've envisioned for yourself. What has to happen for you to reach that future? I'm going to show you how sleep is the most important aspect of getting you there. And, you know, if you're somebody who's motivated to move towards your future, you're going to have no problem doing that. Now, you know, the, the foundation of, of sleep then allows everything else I do to be easier, but it also changes everything. So once I get somebody sleeping really well for three months, then I redo their labs and without any intervention, and I don't just mean like blood labs, I'm talking about like neurocognitive testing, reaction time, brainwave mapping, like all of this stuff, everything will shift drastically in three months just because they've slept. And now that's their real blue, that's their real baseline that, we, that we're going to work from. So yeah, the short answer to all that babbling is that I just have to convince people it's the most important thing for them, and then they will find the time. You know, I, I used to, it took me a long time to realize that. I mean, it, it was really laughable to me, and I, I give this crazy metaphor all the time. It, it's not true, but it's not far from true, is that I would say, I could say to them, I want you to eat kale for every single meal. And they would just be like, okay, check, kale for every meal. And I've taken notes. And I'd say, I want you to exercise for two hours a day. And I'd, okay, check, two hours a day. I want you to meditate for two hours a day. Okay, check. And they do that. And I'd say, now I want you to sleep for eight hours. And they'd be like, whoa, 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 I don't have time to sleep eight hours. Okay, well, then don't meditate, <laughs> exercise. You know, it's like. Once they have motivation, then what is the next step after motivation? Well, when I work with people, of course, once I get them motivated, I have, I, I mean, I have a whole sort of series of things I put them through, depending on what their sleep, like what their sleep difficulties are. But I do a ton of education around sleep. I'm, I'm not just saying figure it out for yourself. And, and so, you know, the specifics of it would depend on, you know, if you're, there, there, so there's a difference between not valuing sleep and not being able to sleep well. If you just don't value sleep, then let's see what happens when you value it. And most people don't need much help. I mean, it's, it's little tidbits. I mean, it might be revolutionary, amazing concepts to them, but it's really simple, small things that I've been working with for over a decade, and, and it's predictable, and I can say, you know, do this, don't do that. But if you have difficulty sleeping, uh, then that's a whole different ball of wax, and we have to figure out why, and, and that, that requires a lot of sort of deep insight and deep expertise and a lot of conversation and a lot of work and a lot of, Oftentimes, a lot of research on my part, my part, and you know, speaking with other people, and it, there's a lot of interventions. But for, for the basic human being, as you said in the opening, my philosophy is that if we lived closer to the way we evolved to be on this planet, and I just think of us as part of this planet, like I don't think of us as any kind of anything exceptional. We're no more exceptional than ants or trees or you know any or fish. Or like or like we're just part of it, and the problem is we've taken ourselves off of off of that. Like we we have these big brains that allow to allow us the arrogance to consider ourselves different, and we no longer need the assistance of the earth. And in fact, we're trying to save the earth from us, which is probably the most arrogant concept I've ever heard of in my life. But it, we we the closer we can approximate the way we live, the healthier we'll be. So sleep is super easy. If I say to you. It, I don't care if you've ever read a history book or watched a movie uh, about anything. If I just said to you, what do you think life was like a thousand years ago? Or let's go 2,000 years ago. What do you think happened when the sun went down? 
And, you know, what do you think uh, people did when the sun went down? And how do you think they behaved? And then when the sun came up, what do you think happened, right? And mm-hmm. like, we, we intuitively know, right? It, well, all the light went away. They didn't have, they didn't have, <laughs> they didn't have electricity. You know, they, they had some candles maybe or fires or things like that, but they didn't have electricity. So when the light went away, they were in a much more dangerous world because we're a sight-dominated animal, right? I mean, we, we don't smell that well. We don't, you know, we can't hear that well. We're certainly not good predators without weapons. We're not good at defending predators without weapons. I mean, if an angry raccoon can kick my ass, and I'm a 250-pound Navy SEAL. Like, I, like we, <laughs> we can't fight other animals. Like, we're crap at that, and especially animals that can see at night. So, you know, when you, when you think about how your ancestors evolved, well, once the sun went away, then they would have tucked away into, like, some place they considered safe, and they would have moved less. There would have been less stimulation. They certainly, they, I mean, it's, I think it's very unlikely to think that that's when they would have started cooking dinner or like eating or anything like that. Like they would have done that in the daylight when they could see, right? And so they would tuck away and they'd find a warm, safe place. And then they would lay down their animal skins or whatever, you know, however they slept. And they would lay down and then they would fall asleep. And then when the sun started, you know, right around sunup, their body temperature, I, I mean, I know this because I, you know, I, this is my world, but so what, one of the things that wakes you up is your body temperature getting low enough, right? And so when you kind of hit a, a peak, uh, peak nadir of the body temperature, that starts releasing stress hormones and that starts waking you back up. And so the coldest time of any night is right before sunup. And so right around the time it's getting super cold and your body temperature is hitting a certain level, you start waking up and then the sunlight comes out and then that puts light in your eyes and it makes it even easier to be awake. Well, all you really have to do is approximate that, right? So if you're watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre with a volume up at 300 at 10 o'clock at night, even then you're like, oh, I don't have any lights on. Well, you're still stimulating your brain, right? But if you're working on a stressful work-related project, something with a deadline, and you're on your computer, and you're cranking on your computer until 9.59, and you're going to go to bed at 10, and you get in bed at 10, and you're not sleepy, well, I wonder why. Like, that's, it doesn't take any kind of genius. Interesting. And here I would like to ask you that you go to bed around nine o'clock. Then what time do you sh- shut down your mind? I really, I mean, I would say the latest I can, the latest I really ever work, the latest I do anything stimulating, I would say, is probably about seven p.m. I'd say I, I finish work usually around six o'clock. I work out early in the day. It, you know, if I do anything active at six o'clock, you know, it's like. A pretty calm bike ride or walk or you know maybe you know paddle around in a kayak or paddleboard or something like that but i'm not like out there burning it down you know exercising hard and i and i i mean i'm, I'm a bit odd in that i just i don't really watch television it's just for whatever reason it's just not with me so i I've, I've never really done that um, do you read just before the bed uh, i don't i don't read at night just because i don't i don't really I don't read fiction pretty much. I, I have to read so much just to be an entrepreneur and to be a 
you know, a good physician, uh, physician and, and consultant. I just, I mean, I literally, I just read all day and most <laughs> half of it's on my computer and half of it's out of books or, you know, printed articles and things like that. So I don't, I don't really read for leisure. I have a book on Navy SEALs called Lone Survivor. Have you heard of that book? Yes. Whenever I read that book before going to bed, it is difficult for me to sleep good because in that book, it's all about the Navy SEALs stories, fighting, shooting. One of the most stressful books I've ever read. I mean, and I, and I know Marcus and, you know, and I know the guys who, well, I mean, I, I wasn't friends with the guys who died, but I know, I knew who they were, you know, they're, you know, they were people that I was, you know, that either I interacted with to some degree or I had, you know, we had lots of mutual friends. And so they're still part, you know, they're still considered part of our family and our community. And I, and I got to know Marcus after the fact of that. But yeah, I mean, it, so I, I always, I do this all the time. I think it, it fits with what you're asking right now. You know, something that I tell people all the time is, you know, the sleep, the sleep ritual, the sleep bedtime routine it, is, it's a really an individual thing. But if you think about it from the standpoint of evolution, and if you aren't someone who, who thinks well that way, then I, then I say, then just think about a little kid. So if you've ever had kids or if you've ever been a kid, you might remember this whole idea of like a, of like a bedtime routine, even though we don't call it that. We call it getting ready for bed, right? But, you know, it, it's, pretty, it, it's pretty obvious and transparent. You don't take... You know, like you wouldn't take a toddler who's like banging trucks together and smashing things and you wouldn't take them and just throw them in their bed and turn off the light and walk out the door. Why? Because it wouldn't work, right? They're all, they're all amped up and they would just come running back out of the room. So what, what, do you, what do we do? Well, we say, well, there's no rough housing. There's no rough play after about this time, right? It's quiet play. You don't smash things together. You don't, you know, you don't play loud stimulating video games right before bed so a couple of hours before bed you start slowing down their their brain you start slowing down their activity levels and then you know usually when they're young you'll start doing things like you know decreasing the light and house decreasing the stimulation you put them in a bath why do you put them in a bath you put them in a path you put them in a bath to calm them down right you can't be super wild in a bath without blowing all the water out of the bathtub it also lowers their body temperature because nobody takes 100-degree baths, right? You're putting them in an 80-something degree bath, and their body temperature is 98.6. So you're going to drop their body temperature a little bit. And, you know, you start doing calming, cooling, you know, soothing things. You get them out of the bath, and you dry them off, and you put them in their really soft pajamas, and you maybe put some powder in there. Why are you doing that? Well, you're decreasing the sensation to their skin. You're making them feel sort of cozy and comfortable. Then you put them in their bed. You put them in their bed, and now they're in a comfortable, safe environment. And you lay down next to them, and you start reading them a book that they've heard a thousand times because you don't want to stimulate their brain. You're actually trying to entrain their brain. One of the reasons Dr. Seuss books were so successful is because they have this cadence about them, this rhythmic cadence and rhyming words. And people read, tend to read them all in a very similar fashion, and you're entraining their brain into going slower, and they're you know they're feeling comfortable, and then you put the books away, and you can you tell them how safe they are and how much you love them, and then you walk out and you turn the lights out, and they're able to fall asleep. Well, humans are humans, and it doesn't matter if you're five years old or fifty-five years old; you still need all of those things to happen. 
So when we go to sleep, the only thing that's really happening when we're going to sleep is that we are our brain is paying less attention to the, our environment. If you think about it, your eyes still work while you're asleep, and your ears still work while you're asleep, and your nose still works, and your brain is still working. And you're, you can still feel sensation. You can still move. So what's different? The difference is that your attention is not on your environment. You, right? you aren't paying attention to the things going around you, going on around you. But if somebody turns on a bright light in your room, there's no sound to light. Why does the light wake you up? Because your eyes, why is an odd sound? It can be even a quiet sound, but just an odd sound that you're not used to hearing. Why does that wake you up? Because you're hearing all night and you're just not paying attention to it. But once something odd comes on, then your brain's like, whoa, 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 what's that? Let's see if there's something important about that. And then you'll wake up. And so all that's going on is your, your brain is decreasing its engagement with the environment. We call that being a barrier between you and your environment. And once all of that, and that's part of the sleep process, and once that happens, then a lot of physiological changes can go on in your brain. And then the cue for your brain slowing down and paying less attention to your environment, one is a less stimulating environment, of course, but the other one is the light, which most people know about, right? The, the blue light that comes in our eyes tells our brain that it's time to be awake. And so the physiology of our brain and our body are different when we have blue light coming into our eyes. Once the blue light goes away, the sun goes down, there's no more blue sky to put blue light in our eyes. Once the sun goes down, it changes the physiology of our brain. A hormone called melatonin starts being secreted. That starts changing a lot of the other physiology, including decreasing our attention to our, attention to our environment around us. And then we start falling asleep. And if you look at hunter-gatherers, I mean, we still do research to this day on tribes that have never been exposed to electricity. They have no modern conveniences whatsoever. They still sleep on animal skins. They, you know, they're hunter-gatherers. They go out, they get their food during the day, and like that's their existence. They, their goal when they get up in the morning is to get enough food to survive through the day. That's what they do. And they go to sleep about three to three and a half hours after the sun goes down. So it, it's not as simple as just taking the blue light out of your eyes, you know, 30 minutes before bedtime. It, it's a protracted period. The more blue light you get out of your eyes, the earlier, the better the chemical changes in your brain will occur, the faster your brain will be ready for sleep, the higher quality sleep you'll actually get. So that's really all there is to the sleep routine is getting the blue light out of your eyes. And you can do this with blue blocking glasses and with you know, things to put on your computers and phones to where it doesn't emanate any more blue light. And there, you know, actual light bulbs you can put in your house that will take the blue light out at a certain type of head. There's all sorts of gadgets and tricks for that. Do you recommend taking a shower right before the bed? If, if that works for you, like I, I don't have a preference on that. A shower, again, most people don't take 100 degree showers. So uh, a shower will lower your body temperature. And if you find a shower to be relaxing, then yeah, it would, it would be a good a good way to help decrease your body temperature. So me, I'll, I'll tell you, like my my prescribed ritual is like as I say, like you know seven seven o'clock or so is, is as late as I'll do anything. You know, and, and we're talking about ninety percent of the time, right? And of course, there are all sorts of events that happen in my life where I where I, this isn't true. But my my standard ritual, you know, around seven o'clock at night. I, I mean, I only have one bank of lights on. Uh, that's in my, you know, that that's in my sort of kitchen living area, and those are those are pretty dim. And you know, I I will come in and you know I will you know, sort of finish whatever 
sort of chores or activities around the house that need to be done. I will, you know, I'll whatever communicate. I'll have maybe, you know, talk to my kids or some text with my kids or, you know, whatever, just communication with friends and families and loved ones. I'll, I'll do that over the phone or text or something like that. You know, about an hour before I go to bed, I, I go and I make my, you know, my sleep tea that I, you know, that I sell. I make, I, I do my little sleep remedy. I do that. I, you know, I brush my teeth. I, you know, whatever. I put my clothes away. I like, I do whatever needs to be done to set, to get me set for the next day. Uh, sometimes I'll, you know, review my schedule just so that I know what's going on. But it, it's all calm, relaxing stuff. You know, some, whatever, some days I might, you know, listen to something. I mean, I'm, I'm usually listening to music, but I might listen to a little bit of an audio book if it's a fictional kind of non-important thing or, you know, some, you know, some days I will watch a, whatever, a television show or part of a movie or something like that. But it's just calm, relaxing stuff. I get in bed at nine o'clock, you know, I wake up and when I wake up in the morning, I, you know, I get up and I make my coffee and I get ready to go to the gym and I go to the gym and I come home from the gym and I shower and I start my day. When do you meditate? I meditate actually right around noon. So I, I find that somewhere somewhere around noon and I don't I don't schedule it because I don't have to. I have so much control over my schedule. But usually around noon I will find myself being you know, I can just tell. Like I just I just feel like I'm getting a little amped. I'm just feeling a little more I'm feeling a little less comfortable in my skin. And I'll sit down and do about a 30 minute meditation on the weekends. Uh, a lot of times if I'm not, if I'm not working, which is pretty common, uh, most weekends I don't work. If I'm not working on the weekends, I'll, I'll sometimes meditate, you know, right after I, I sort of get up and get my morning coffee. And then, you know, if I'm just in a really stressful period, I might meditate three or four times a day. As a listener to this podcast, I'm thinking, Dr. Kirk, how about I divide my sleep schedule in two batches, maybe three batches, let's say, if I want to sleep eight hours a day, what if I sleep four hours in one slot and four hours in another slot? Does it work? No, it doesn't work. Yeah, because sleep isn't a, it's not a consistent process. It's not a constant process. So the, you know, the first two hours of sleep during the night, if we look at your if we look at your physiology if we look at your brain waves your respiratory rate your heart rate your blood pressure your pulse oxidation how much you're moving what areas of your brain are active the first two hours of of sleep every night is nothing like the last two hours i mean they they're they don't look anything similar uh when we plot these out they're called histograms and we can look at the what we call the your sleep architecture the structure of your sleep you know, you, you should go through these phases one through four. We, you should go through these stages in a predictable pattern that we can literally draw out as you go through them. And you go, you know, you go from one, you go down into four. Like it's going deeper and deeper levels of sleep, slower and slower brainwave states. Different physiological things are happening during deep sleep. Deep sleep is very anabolic. It's the exact opposite of fight or flight. It's when you have almost no stress hormones in you. And your immune system is working at its highest. It's when you're secreting all your growth hormones. It's when you're repairing all your tissues. You're flushing toxins out of your brain and all that stuff. During deep sleep, you spend some time in deep sleep, roughly an hour in deep sleep, and then you start crawling back up. And you go from stage four to stage three to two to one, and then you go into REM sleep. And REM sleep is a, it's 
it's more regenerative and more restorative to your brain and you're working with emotional ideas you're working with new things that you've learned you're you're, mo you're working with you know just thoughts and concepts and experiences you're working with that in your brain during REM you spend a little bit of time in REM and then you start going back down into another deep sleep cycle and then the morning hours there's very little deep sleep so you'll go down into maybe stages three and four of sleep even if you, you might not even get to four you might stop around stage three sleep and then you only spend about 10 minutes in there and then you start crawling back up and then you spend like an hour in REM sleep instead of an hour in deep sleep and 10 minutes of REM at the beginning of the night, you'll spend an hour in the REM sleep and 10 minutes of deep uh, towards the morning hours. And so if you break up your sleep, you lose that, you lose that sleep architecture because you know, one, one sleep phase dictates the next sleep phase. So you have to, you have to go through that order over and over again. Then what is the use of naps? Uh, so the use of naps is exactly the same as the use. Well, there's a caveat. So the use of naps if you're sleep deprived is to try to mitigate the damage that you're doing to your body by not getting enough sleep and to try to, you know, recapture some of the physiology, you know, really decreasing the stress hormones that are, but also it's changing some other physiological things. You're, you're trying to basically put patchwork on a damaged boat, right? <laughs> it's a patch. <laughs> and you're trying to decrease how much performance decrement you get and you're trying to decrease how much long-term damage you've done by not getting enough sleep if you're sleeping adequately the purpose of naps is essentially the same thing as the your purpose of meditation it really does the same thing you know when you look at people who are really skilled meditators they get down into theta brainwave stage well that's the same brainwave that's stage three sleep and so getting into uh sleep you know, for that purpose, if you're sleeping well and doing, uh, you know, doing a 30-minute nap, well, that's getting you uh, all the benefits of sleep. And so one of the things that happens when you, one of the things that happens when you're awake all day, so the, you, let, so let's say it this way, when you, when you wake up, you're essentially, you're at your peak. You're the most physiological, you're most physiologically capable of any kind of activity, of any stressor, the most ready you are at any time of any day is a, you know within an hour or so of waking up, right? And throughout the day, you're actually progressively getting worse because you're building up waste waste products. Essentially, you're using fuel sources, you're consuming your resources, and you're developing waste products, which are often hurt. But it's just you know it's things that have to be flushed out. It's like the trash, you know. It's like you. If you live in life, you you know you build up trash and you dump it, and then you build up trash and you dump it, and your body's the same way. And so, the longer you're awake, the more of these sort of waste products that are around. And a big one for us, for human beings, is is something called adenosine. Our primary fuel source for everything that we do is, is something called ATP. That's our cellular energy source, adenosine triphosphate. And ATP gets broken down ultimately into just adenosine. And adenosine builds up in our brain and it makes us sleepy and it makes us feel like going to sleep and it makes our, and because it's a toxin, it starts impairing our brain function to some degree. All coffee does, all caffeine does is it blocks adenosine receptors. And so you're, you're, it's decreasing the effect of the adenosine in your brain. Now, if you take a nap, you can flush out some of that adenosine. You're using the, 
the glucose that is stored in your cells, that is called glycogen, you're using up sort of the the energy sources of your brain while you're awake. You're using up the energy sources of your cell, your cells while you're awake. So if you go to sleep and you take even just a short nap, like a 20 minute nap, you replenish some of that, rebalance some of that. And so like a short nap can, can restore creativity pretty quickly, which is why you hear stories like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Edison and all these guys that like they slept at yep. their and they had little devices to kind of wake them up. And that was because they would wake up in a more creative state because they've gotten rid of some of that stuff. And, it, and it's almost like a mindfulness thing too, right? Because you're, you're taking your focus off the problem. Uh, and then if you sleep from 20 minutes to 45 minutes, you're actually replenishing enough of your brain's resources to where you're, you know, you're actually your concentration, problem solving skills, verbal skills, communication, all that stuff will improve. And then if you go from 45 minutes out to like 120 minutes, you're actually getting into those deep sleep cycles and you're actually repairing your, your body as well. So you're, you're, you're getting the full benefit as if you were asleep. This is all science. I prefer taking long walks when I'm stressed out or something is happening. I would go for long walks and that during the middle of the day. Yeah, and, and like I said, that's, that's a form of meditation for a lot of people. I mean, I, I consider my, my walks pretty meditative as well, unless there's just something really gnawing at me, and then it's just... <laughs> Got it. And uh, Dr. Kirk, before I ask you my last question, I want to ask you, what motivates you to do this kind of work? What motivates me? Well, I mean, there's a litany of things. I would say <laughs> simple, you know, the, the simple thing is what, what motivates me every day is to have you know be able to exert whatever control i have in this life towards moving towards the future that i believe is the best for me and that's a really vague answer but you know i'm motivated by my profession and i'm motivated by my my own self-assessment my own you know my own critique it's the things that i want to be better at just because i want to be better at it. i'm motivated by my relationships i'm you know, I'm motivated by all sorts of things, but you know, in the, at the end of the day, it's just, you know, I have a, I have a vision of what I think would would be uh, a better life for me, and I and I have a, I mean, I have a fantastic life. I have zero complaints about my life, but you know, the future that I that I'm moving towards that I feel is more desirable than my current state. You know, there's there's something, you know, there's a hundred things in there that motivate me every day. That's awesome. And where can our listeners find you online? Uh, Doc Parsley, D-O-C-E-A-R-S-L-E-Y, docparsley.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Kirk Parsley. It, it has been an amazing conversation. I hope our listeners will definitely learn so much. I'm going to apply so many things from this conversation for sure. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. I hope you learned from this episode that you can apply in your life. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to the podcast, The Nishan Garg Show on Apple Podcast. You can also subscribe to the show through my website, https colon slash slash nishangarg.me N-I-S-H-A-N-T-G-A-R-G dot me. You can also share this podcast with your family and friends or whoever want to feel fulfilled and thank you so much again.